The reading this morning comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. It can be found in page 1067 of the Church Bibles. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled person, people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of the Lord. Am I on? Good morning, everyone. Sorry, I had my microphone off. I will just get myself organised. Let me just also add my words to Scott in terms of uh, prayer and fasting week. Uh, unlike every other year, I've not been well this year and couldn't partake of the fasting at five o'clock last Sunday. I was talking to a couple of people, doctors. They looked at me, said, Bruce, you're not fasting. And uh, they're like kind of mother and father talking to me. Uh, anyway, I've listened to their advice. I had a technology fast, uh, which was not the same. Um, but I did ask for some feedback, and I'll just read you a couple of things. Um, I just want to read one in particular, uh, some feedback from the week. Uh, one person emailed me this. This is the first time I've fasted for more than one day, and it's been a wonderful experience. So much so that I wonder if we could do it as a church twice a year instead of just once. <laughs> I thought I'd get that response. Anyway, I really like what she had to say. Um, fasting helped me to realise how much unnecessary excess we have from day to day and how little we really need. Having no energy made me actually very calm, feeling as though I was resting in God's grace as I simply had no energy left for the extras we become so attached to. 
No energy to disagree vehemently with someone's point of view. No energy to stand up for my rights. No energy to worry about whether I should have swept up that extra crumb off the floor. Only energy enough to read and pray and move through the essentials of each day. I particularly wanted to spend time praying for my three children who seem to have drifted away from Jesus at this phase of their lives. I'm reminded that I'm not asked to worry about them. I'm asked to love them and pray for them and to trust God, my loving Father, to trust in his goodness and grace and perfect time. Well, it's a wonderful testimony. Let me pray as we come to hear God's word. Father, we do thank you for this great story that we have in front of us. May it speak to our hearts and minds and souls as we consider Jesus and the way he works in the world and in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're at the start of the term in terms of school term. We've just finished a wonderful series going through Romans chapter 8. And today we go back to the Gospel of John. And if you're new with us over the past 12 months, last year we started the journey from John chapter 1 through to chapter 4. And we're going to pick that journey up again now for this first term of the year and look at John chapter 5 to 7. Now, at the heart of the Christian faith is this wonderful, charismatic, enigmatic, controversial... Uh, larger-than-life figure called Jesus. And he really is at the heart of the Gospels. And the shape of Christian faith, in so many ways, is shaped by this person. We call him the Lord Jesus Christ. He was Jesus of Nazareth. And you see, our faith reflects so much about the nature of this person, Jesus. Uh, He was a historical person, he was incredibly personal, uh, and he's someone who teaches about what it means to know God and to be in relationship with God. Deeply theological is the Lord Jesus. And that's the same with our faith. It's based on historical grounds on this person who entered history. Uh, It's a faith that is deeply personal as we relate with the Lord Jesus Christ personally. Uh, Ours is not just a faith, if I can say, of ideas that we assent to, but rather we personally engage with the living God. But thirdly, our faith is deeply theological. It's shaped by Jesus and his word. And so there's things we do believe, there's things we don't believe, and scripture informs us of them. So why come back to John's gospel? And it's worth saying this at the beginning of, if I can say, the second journey in John. Um, The gospels are so important because they help us to once again be confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ who is at the centre of our faith and to be shaped by him. And it will challenge us in terms of what we know and what we believe about God and help us hopefully to relate better to him and more personally with him. And we come today to the third miracle or third sign that John records in his Gospel. Now, it's worth saying, uh, there's a whole range of miracles that Jesus performed. John, when you get to the end of John's Gospel, says there's so many, I could fill just books and books with all the stories. He gives us just seven miracles. In other words, he's very selective. And he tells in more detail the stories of the miracles than some of the other Gospel writers do. And he's got some that the other Gospel writers don't have. And they're woven together to help us get a picture of what it means for who Jesus is and what it means to know him. And as we come to this one, it's 
on the back of the first one, which was the great party trick, some people would say, uh, where Jesus turned water into wine. Uh, the crowds love that one. It comes straight after an official has called on Jesus and Jesus has healed this official's son. And this one is the healing of a lame person, a paralytic, a cripple. I want to say a couple of things just by way of introduction. Firstly, just by way of history, if you're interested in history, and I would say you should be because the nature of the Christian faith is it's deeply interested in history. Um, This is a very historical story. Let me say all the gospel is historical, but this is one where you can actually touch base with real history in terms of what happened. Now, I'll just read you verse 1 and 2. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, is a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now if you've got your Bibles there, please do get them out. I want you to have a look uh, as we go through this story. But just out of interest, um, you've got a reference there to the sheep gate um, near a pool, uh, which is called Bethsaida, surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now it's worth noting in Nehemiah, from the Old Testament, when he went to Jerusalem and rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, one of the first places that he went to was actually this area. And in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, and in verse 32, and also later on, he talks about rebuilding the Sheep Gate. It was a known area historically within Jerusalem. But a second um, interesting reference to this place uh, is later on, in about the 4th century, Origen, who's one of the great church fathers and who wrote numbers of books, wrote material about John's Gospel. And in particular, he writes about this story, and he tells the story of actually knowing about this exact historical place through a French pilgrim from the Bordeaux region who went to Jerusalem in 333 AD. And when he wrote about it, this French pilgrim, he described a pair of pools with five arcades. Guess where? Bethsaida. Now, there's a slight difference in the spelling of the name, but this is a deeply historical book that we're looking at with real people. It is a real Lord Jesus that we engage with. Now, interestingly, if you go there today, this is a photo of what you will see. And Ning Cheng, who comes to our evening congregation, lovely lady, Chinese background, converted here, she went there last year on a tour of Jerusalem, and that's actually the colonnades. The pool, unfortunately, is empty. Anyway, um, that's how time changes. What's most important about this story is not the history behind it though, it's what actually takes place as Jesus engages with the cripple. And there's three things that strikes me. First, you've got this very searching question which uh, I take it is not just searching for the cripple, it will be searching for us as well. Secondly, there's a miraculous healing and thirdly, a troublesome response. Let's look first at the searching question. Verse 3, have a look. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, speaking of the pool at Bethsaida, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? We're going to come back to the question, but it's worth noting, I don't know if you noticed, uh, who saw verse 4 in your text? Anyone pick it up? There is no verse 4 in your text. It's verse 3 and it goes straight to verse 5. Now, I thought I would just make note as to why that is because sometimes you'll read this and go, what on earth is happening? Um, verse 4 was in all of the early editions of the Bibles up until the 1600s with the King James Version. After that, 
due to the fact that they discovered more reliable and early manuscripts, they worked out that verse 4 actually was not part of the early manuscripts. And without giving you a history in terms of how we got the Bible, uh, we actually don't have the original copy of John's Gospel. We've got copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Uh, We've got, if I can say, stretching from very early on, in about the 200s, right through to late, you know, 1000, Uh, We have manuscripts and pieces of scripture uh, that have been copied. We have over 20,000 documents that they actually work out what is in the New Testament. And they can trace back and go through a process of science. This is what the first document said because there are so many copies in such a range of areas that you can actually trace back and go, this is what the original said with an accuracy of, I would want to say, 99.5%. What's interesting, though, is obviously over the ages, something crept into the text. And in particular, verse 4 crept in. And it's fascinating because you can actually see verse 4 in the footnotes. There's nothing to hide in terms of what we have here in the scripture. Uh, But it's a reference to um, a legend that probably grew up that from time to time, people would come to bathe in the water and at the precise moment they saw bubbling, there was a belief that an angel would come and heal. Now... That text shows you in verse 4 that that's why these people were sitting here. And you see it hinted at in verse 7. There was this sense of which this was a place where there was holy water. Now, whether that's the case or not is a different issue. And verse 4, I don't think is scripture, why it shouldn't, which is why it's not there. What is important to note, though, is you've got this crippled man who's been there for years. In that society, he would have been an old man. And 38 years he's been lame, paralysed, crippled. And Jesus comes to him and asks him this searching question. Do you want to get well? Now, I don't know what you think about that question being asked. Do you want to get well? But it seems almost like a rude question to ask. Uh, Let me say, if I go hospital visiting... And I see someone who's been there for years and I say to them, do you want to get well? (laughs) I don't know if you'd want me as your minister doing that. Now, if you'd been in bed at home, bedridden for 38 years and I came up and saw you and said, oh, lovely to see you, Joyce. Do you actually want to get well? I think people would be ringing up the wardens and saying, what sort of senior minister have you got? Now, there was a movement back in the 80s when I was first converted called the WWJD movement. I don't know if you remember it. What would Jesus do? And typically they would engage with things like, you know, should I be more compassionate? Should I forgive? Do I stand up here for the truth, for the vulnerable? That kind of thing. I've never seen someone pick up this part of Jesus' life and go, that's what you should do. Do you want to get well? I wouldn't encourage it unless you can do the next part, which is say, get up your, take up your mat and walk, which is what Jesus does. Why does he ask him this question to a man who for 38 years has been lame and for years he's been there and watched others get taken to the pool, whether they were healed or not I don't know but what we do know is 38 years on he's still there and he's a cripple. It's interesting the response the man gives, have a look at verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied. Now, sir doesn't mean necessarily a a sense of great 
respect, it's just a, a more formal title. I've got no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, I don't know how you would feel. You'd feel, I would think, quite despairing for 38 years. I mean, that's a long time. Everyone keeps beating you to it. You never get helped. Now, a charitable reading of the response here by the old man would say, well, he answers Jesus by telling him what he's been trying to do. You could say Jesus is testing the man's willingness to be healed. And you might say, well, he passes with fine colours, but does he? It's interesting when asked a very direct, simple question, do you want to get well? It's not like the man's face lights up and goes, yes, can you make me well? It's almost like he's lost in his grumbling, oh, you know... Been here for 38 years, no one ever looks after me. And I say that because it's interesting to note what happens when he is healed. When he's healed, he avoids difficulties with the religious authorities who come and give him a difficult time. He just blames Jesus. He made me do it. Made you do what? Walk. When asked who did the healing, he says, look, I don't know who it was. And it's interesting, when he finds out at the end of the story that it is Jesus, what does he do? Goes and dobs Jesus into the authorities. Actually, it was Jesus who did it. Now, it's very interesting when you contrast and compare this with some of the other miracles that take place and how the people who are healed or affected respond. I'll come to that later on. But it does make, make you ask the question, what is Jesus really asking this man when he says... Do you want to be well? I take it he's not just asking, do you want to be physically healed? There's something deeper going on as Jesus is confronting this man about who he is. Do you want to be well? It's interesting, through the 80s, one of the big movements was the movement in terms of environment to save the planet. Uh, Affectionately called the Greenies, They've been doing a wonderful job in terms of highlighting the need to look after the place, the creation. One of the more modern movements, and some within it would say it will be the next major global movement, is the wellness movement. The desire that we don't just look after the planet, but we actually look after ourselves. And it's a recognition that health is not just body, but mind and spirit. In 2015, health care reporters say that the wellness movement is worth $3.7 trillion globally. And you think of all the seminars, the products available to help people be well in a holistic sense. For the first time in human history, I understand non-communicable communicable diseases are killing us more than communicable ones. Communicable ones are things like strokes, uh, sorry, like viruses. And so if you go back a couple of hundred years' time, that's what killed people, typically. What is typically killing people today, and it's worse in Western uh, rich countries, which is us, is things like strokes, heart attacks, cancer. Far more deadly than flu and viruses. And what you could say, in simple terms, and I know it's being simplistic, is that our modern lifestyle choices are increasingly to blame for our death. 
And so it's worth asking the question of people who are sick, physically actually, do you want to get well? So many of the things that we suffer with are self-inflicted. And so Jesus asked this man, what at the surface appears a very callous question, do you want to get well? But there's something far deeper going on. Well, secondly, there's a miraculous healing that takes place. Verse 8, have a look. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Eight words. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Unlike his question, which appears ambiguous, there's nothing ambiguous about what takes place now. There's clarity, there's authority, there's simplicity. It's not like the snake oil peddler who claims to be able to lengthen someone's leg. And I've seen people who have claimed to have healing powers and it appears to be more a theatrical show than a work of God. And that's not to say people can't be healed. I've seen people healed. But this is quite remarkable. Get up. Pick up your mat walk and at once immediately he's cured and he picks up his mat having waited for 38 years and he walks away fascinating they didn't even know who Jesus was but simply by a word Jesus has spoken and the man is healed when you read John's gospel it says there are seven signs well it doesn't give you the number but it it describes the miracles as being signs that's the descriptor that John uses and he says they're a sign because they reveal God's glory and Jesus glory which was to reveal God's glory the actions point to something greater in John's gospel And what you see here is the third sign that Jesus performs. And it's pointing to something far greater that's at work. God is at work here, miraculously, to intervene in human history. It's remarkable. With just a word, he can take a human disease that we experience and heal it like that. And I want to say, if you're new here to the Christian faith... Or perhaps you just wandered in, and I know we have people who just come in and you're thinking, I'd like to find out about God. It's great you're here. At the heart of what we're on about is the Lord Jesus. Because he is the one who has come from God into our history, personally, to reveal God to us. And these signs in John's Gospel are there to point us to the reality of who Jesus is, not just a man, though he was, but actually the Son of God. And that by believing, you can have life in his name. And he's the one who actually can make us well. And if you're considering the Christian faith, it's worth knowing he can transform your life. He can make you well. He can take you from being broken to restored. He can take you from being anxious to at peace. He can take you from walking in the dark to actually living in the light. And ultimately, on the last day, 
There will be a resurrection of those who trust in Christ from the dead and will be made fully, wholly well. All of us will experience the wholeness and the wellness, body, mind, spirit in the new creation when we are raised from the dead with the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just say, if you'd like to find out more, the sole course that we've been advertising, great way to do that. It goes through Jesus' life, death and resurrection by looking at Mark's gospel and uh, it'll help you understand the Christian faith as you understand Jesus. Let me say another way that I'd love to um, just let people know, if you'd like someone just to sit with you and read John's gospel, uh, we've got a great tool called the Word One-to-One and if you'd like to just have someone take you through John's Gospel week by week, step by step, that's also a great way of doing it. Just let us know on the Connect cards. But let's move to the end of this story because you get a troublesome response in my mind. We're at John chapter 9 through to 15. Let me read. The story continues. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Here he is, kind of deflecting blame. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was. But Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. It's a troublesome response. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What's going on? Why does Jesus finish this miracle speaking to the man that way? It's a good question to ask. John conveniently mentions there in verse 9 that it's the Sabbath day that Jesus healed the man on and this should have alerted them to a number of things. Firstly, it's worth saying, um, if we had someone here in the congregation who was lame for 38 years and we've got people here at St Matthew's who've had long-term significantly debilitating illness, And if you imagine if they turned up at church today and I said to them, get up and walk, and they got up and walked, what do you reckon we'd do? Yeah! Man, there'd just be so much joy in this place, wouldn't there? I mean, you'd be crying, you'd be kind of amazed, you'd have people who'd never been to church before going, what is going on? It'd be so exciting. Let me say, it will happen in the new creation, so look forward to it. It'll be so amazing. It wouldn't just be Dave Endormano who'd be up the front dancing. I'd be dancing with him. And what do the religious leaders say? It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to take your mat. And it's fascinating with the man, he doesn't even know who's done it to him. Now, put yourself in the man's situation. If this has happened, what would you do? I would go up and I'd grab him. (laughs) I wouldn't let him run away. Jamie, we want you in church, not outside. (laughs) Sorry, have a seat. (laughs) Isn't that what you think you'd naturally do? You would be so amazed. Oh, I don't know who did it. He slipped away. 
Well, that's the first thing that you think, what is going on here? Secondly, the religious leaders should have known this. Sabbath means rest. Sabbath, it's a Hebrew word, just simply means rest. And they were called to rest periodically, weekly, to stop and remember that God was taking them on a journey to the promised land and that he would come and save them. And he would finally have them at rest and not just physically, the sense of holistic rest and wellness. It was when the new creation was going to come. And so what better day is there for a man to be healed and made well than the Sabbath? Particularly when you read Isaiah 35. Now, I'll put a couple of verses from this chapter. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Isaiah 35 if you want to look. But these are the two key verses. Verse 4 says this, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. And so Isaiah predicts there's going to be a time when God turns up, two things happen, judgment is going to happen, salvation is going to happen. So make sure you're the one waiting to be saved because God will come and judge, but he will come and save. And then he says in verse 5, what's this day going to look like? Well, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer... And the mute tongue shout for joy, water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. It finishes in verse 10 by saying this, And those the Lord has rescued will return, they'll enter Zion with singing and everlasting joy, will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The religious leaders should have known this. That one of the great signs of God appearing was the blind seeing. The deaf hearing, the lame walking. What have you got in front of you, religious leaders? You've got a blame man who's now walking. It's interesting, these same religious leaders will see a blind man now seeing in chapter 9. And what do they say? The law forbids you to carry a mat. They should have seen in this miracle that the day of salvation has arrived. God has come, as the prophet predicted. The lame are walking. Oh no, but it's the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. And you see, both the leaders and the man should have seen that in this Jesus, this miracle was pointing to something far greater. That God himself was turning up and he was coming to save his people. And like Isaiah said, there should have been great joy and gladness and singing and dancing. And it makes you understand the question a lot better. So do you want to be well? Do you really want to be well? Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. What could be worse than 38 years as a cripple? I take it it's the divine judgment that Isaiah also spoke of alongside the salvation that was coming. Do you want to be well? As I said earlier, the wellness movement speaks of body, mind and spirit. When Jesus asks him, do you want to be well, he wasn't just talking about physically well. 
Do you want to be healed? He was saying, really, do you want to be right with God in all of areas of your life? One of the things that happens as a minister here in Manly, particularly at St Matthew's because of our location, is we have many people who come into the door seeking help. And that's a great thing. It's an incredible privilege, really, to be here at the centre of the village. I will often meet, and my staff will often meet people who are in dire circumstances, and if you're here today, we are really glad you're here. There is a God who loves you and wants to work in your life. But sadly, so often, the experience goes like this. What they want is they want the pain to go away. And they want to be prayed for because they want the pain to go away. Now, it's very understandable I wouldn't recommend pain. And when I say pain, I can use that in a broad sense to describe all sorts of issues that people come with and chaos that they're in the midst of and problems they're trying to deal with, suffering that they're experiencing. But the question I want to ask them, and I don't do it in the first instance because it probably is not that pastorally sensitive, is the question Jesus asks. Actually, do you want to be well? If I can rephrase it, is it just that you want the pain to go away or actually do you really want God? Or do you just want him to bless your life? What is it you really want? Very happy to pray for you, but what Jesus is saying, let's be honest here. What is it you really want? Just the pain to go away? Or actually, do you really want God? And he does something to demonstrate that this man really has met God. And what does the man do? Just walks away. Because his pain was healed. And it's why Jesus says, stop sinning. Stop turning your back on God. Stop rebelling against God. Or actually, something worse is going to happen to you. And I want to just leave us with this very simple question this morning. Do you really want God? Or in your life, are you here because you just want the pain to go away and you'd like the blessing of God on your life? And that's my question for us this morning. Do we actually really want God? I'm going to read us as I close another testimony from the prayer and fasting week. I thought I'd give you some feedback on my first experience of fasting all week which included fasting all day and at sundown having just a light supper. I'm not exactly sure what I expected exactly, perhaps with each anticipated belly grumbling that I would seize each moment to direct my gaze to God in praise. I thought it might feel like a feverish type hunger but what I experienced after day one was this low-grade headache accompanied by malaise and listlessness. In fact, I found it to be hard going and not in the mood for songs of praise. But what I discovered was a quietness of the body. I no longer felt compelled to jog the pavements nor get distracted by the endless domestic tasks. Now, I felt this overwhelming urge just to stay still, still of body, still of mind, but open to the Holy Spirit. I poured out my prayers and felt a sense of unity knowing that as a community I was praying with my fellow parishioners to extend our ministries 
and bring more to know the true wonder of Christ. And I praise the Lord. I thought it's a fascinating journey that they went on. That the fasting enabled them to just get to a place where they just wanted God. And I would encourage us to be exactly the same. Not to want just his blessings, not just to want the pain to go away, which is understandable, but to actually want God. As God over us, guiding us, directing us, and being Lord of our life. Well, let's stop and pray. We're going to celebrate communion. Father, we thank you for the blessings we have in knowing you. But most of all, we want you. And Father, where that's a struggle, I pray that you would open our hearts so that we receive you as not just our Saviour, but also our Lord and God. May we want you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.